0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to uh, the Philly Blunt Shipe Sports Presents edition. Uh, We are uh, very excited this morning to uh, be interviewing uh, a man who is keeping alive the history uh, of such an important part of baseball history, and that's the Negro Leagues. Uh, Welcome to the show, uh, Bob Kendrick, who is the
1: president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Bob, welcome. Welcome, Bob. Hey, man. Thanks so much for having me uh it's it's great to be with you guys And, and i really appreciate the work that you guys are doing and the support that you're giving the anderson monarchs there uh who i've gotten to know steve bondero for quite some time and you know over the years and he's brought the team out to kansas city um and so you know my hats off to you guys for the work that you're doing to provide that opportunity or help provide that opportunity for urban kids to play baseball there
2: has he brought the monarchs through the museum?
1: Yes. Uh huh. Nice. As a matter of fact, one year when Monet was still with the team, they mm-hmm. came out to Kansas City uh, to tour the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. That's great. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. They. We. have talked to Steve this week. We've talked to some of his former players. We actually talked to Monet uh, this week, um, and and it is a, a remarkable. Uh, it is a remarkable thing they're doing. It's also honors the Negro Leagues by the simple fact the team's named the Monarchs and Absolutely. are in Kansas City, which is where the Monarchs uh, play baseball. And, and And tell us a little bit about how the museum started. I know it came about in the 90s. and I, I know that right off the bat, you were a volunteer at the museum and in the subsequent years worked your way all the way up to president.
1: Yeah, it's a crazy story. It's almost an unreal story in terms of my relationship with the museum. But the museum guys got started in 1990. So we're now celebrating our 30th anniversary this year as an organization. And and man, we got started in a little tiny one-room office at Historic 18th and Vine. And at that point in time, there were a number of local Negro leaguers who were still alive. As you all well know, so many of them have passed on. As the case is in Philly, where there were a number of guys once who played for the Philadelphia Stars who are now gone. Right, and it's the same thing in Kansas City. But they literally took turns paying the monthly rent to keep that little office open. Wow! And I like to say, keep our hopes and dreams alive of one day building a museum that would not only pay tribute to one of the great chapters in baseball history, but what now thousands of visitors each and every year come in and discover, one of the greatest chapters in American history. So that was 1990. We built this museum in an area that had, had died. Like a lot of urban areas in our country, historic 18th and Vine had died and had been left abandoned. And in its heyday, it was as recognized street cross section as there was anywhere in the world and we decided to anchor there and build this museum quite frankly against the well wishes of a lot of those who are now supporters of the museum and you can understand why and the question is why would you build a museum in an area that there is no density there is no foot traffic and thanks to the infinite wisdom of the late great buck o'neill who said this is where we will build this museum that is what we did and here we are now 30 years later recognized as America's National Negro Leagues Baseball Museum and what has happened people are now living working and playing at 18th and Vine again do you guys have
2: are do you you always are you always getting new material like new items and new stuff for the museum where do you how do you find how do you come across it
1: and you know we turn over every rock every stone we possibly can the, The hunt is always on to try and bring memorabilia back home to kansas city but you know it's so interesting the more success we have as an organization we've almost become our own worst enemy we've popularized this story to the point that we're driving up the price of oh, right. <laughs> 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 that makes it a challenge for us to compete to yeah. go get them to bring them home you mm. know and so but that's okay if it means that more people are aware of this rich history, then so be it. You know, we're always – because now you're out there competing against private collectors. And, mm-hmm. and, and this is big business, as you guys well know. It's big business, man.
0: Yep. Yeah. So, so you, became, you became friends. How did you become friends with Buck
1: O'Neill? I met Buck O'Neill for the first time in 1993. I was working for the Kansas City Star, the daily newspaper here in KC. And I drew, I was working in the promotions department and I drew the assignment of promoting the museum's first ever traveling exhibition, an exhibition called Discover Greatness. And that's when I met Buck in 1993. We debuted this exhibit at Historic 18th and Vine in a storefront space that's right across the street from where the museum operates now. And we had some success. We drew over 10,000 people in the month of August of 1993 to come down to see this exhibit. Believe it or not, guys, the exhibit is still touring the country. It is on display right now at the Yogi Berra Museum, playing to rave reviews. And and the Yogi Berra Museum, like the rest of us, had to shut down. But we've extended the stay of the exhibition because they were getting so much foot traffic as a result of. And so we're going to allow them to keep the exhibit longer so they can make up for the lost time of this coronavirus shutdown. And so I met Buck in 1993. And like most of us who encounter Buck O'Neill, I fell in love with Buck O'Neill. As I tell people (laughs) all the time, once you're bitten by the buck, bug, You just wanted to be on Buck's team. He was so charismatic, so gregarious, so outgoing. And he wanted to make sure that the legacy of the Negro Leagues played on. He wanted to build, he was so passionate about building this museum so that these incredible athletes these very courageous athletes, would not be forgotten. And I think in the final equation, that's what we all want. We all want to be remembered. And and so I was very blessed. You know, from that point in 1993, and then I became the museum's first director of marketing in 1998. And so now I'm in the organization in an official capacity. And and so Buck and I started traveling all over the country. And, And man, what an amazing ride it was. I'm there watching him. We're gallivanting all over the country. He's preaching the gospel of the Negro Leagues and the virtues of his museum to anyone and everyone who would listen. And, and for me, I guess I'm there along evangelizing also, you know, and and as fate would have it, you know, I now have the opportunity to take the baton from Buck and step into this role now as president, which I'm now in my ninth year as president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum it's been one of the most fulfilling one of the most gratifying things that i think i could have ever done
0: and i know that when you stepped in as president the the museum was was facing some tough times and i know that that you had to you you had the responsibility and i know it was even more important to you because it was a personal responsibility to buck to keep yeah. the museum, to keep the museum alive. What, what were the decisions that you were able to make that were able to reverse, kind of turn around the fortunes
1: of the museum? Well, you know, once someone once told me that the good Lord take care of babies and food. And, and, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not sure which category I fall in, <laughs> but I, I honestly believe, guys, when I made the decision, because I had left the museum in 2010 for about a 13 month time span uh, to take on another role with another not-for-profit organization here in Kansas City. And so when I made the decision to come back, it was a very difficult decision, understanding the complexities in which the the things at the museum were going through. So you're balancing your love for an organization that you had given so much of your time to and the love of Buck O'Neill versus the rationalized mindset of what happens if you can't fix it. Because the way that we are in our society, we never remember the guy who was there who messed it up. <laughs> we remember the guy who was there when the ship sank. You know <laughs> you start to question yourself like, okay, what happens if you can't fix it? And and I'll be I'll be honest. If I tell you that I made this this decision with anything other than my heart. And you're never supposed to make these decisions with your heart. You're supposed (laughs) to make these decisions with your head. You you know, I'm trying to be as rational as I possibly can. And every time I'm trying to rationalize and talk myself out of coming back, old Buck was standing on my shoulder saying, come on back home. So this decision was made totally with my heart. And, And I honestly feel like Buck has been looking over me, that he has been guiding my footsteps. And so when I get back in 2011, It's Buck O'Neill's 100th birthday. And and my predecessor had not done anything to significantly celebrate Buck O'Neill's 100th birthday. So the minute I get back in April of 2011, I put together a Buck O'Neill 100th birthday celebration plan and people responded. Because people still love Buck O'Neill. And and there's great equity in Buck O'Neill's name. and and so we do that in 2011 we have some great success well in 2012 the all-star game comes to kansas city and we put together a great all-star game plan we were really the star of the all-star game i mean outside of what took place at kaufman stadium the focus was squarely on the negro leagues baseball museum nice And, and so and then in 2013 the movie 42. Yeah, the movie 42 comes out. Now I'm just, I'm not lying, I was just fishing for a way in which we could find some avenue to connect to the film. And uh happenstance, I come across a connection with a Kansas City firm that had an investment relationship with legendary films. Waddell and Reed here in Kansas City. Man, I just I just started calling people within waddell and Reed until I found someone who says, yeah, we were just talking about the Negro Leagues Museum. We're kind of a partner in this. We want to do a Hollywood screening with the museum. And yeah, no, and we ultimately had what I would say the second largest screening of the the film 42, only behind Los Angeles. See, but in LA, they do that all the time. (laughs) We don't get to do it. And, And we had Harrison Ford, we had Chad Bozeman, And Andre Holland, who you remember played the reporter, Wendell Smith, in the film. They're all here in Kansas City for our red carpet screening, man. And so that was exciting. And it got the museum, this national platform, the day that the film was released, Harrison Ford and Chad Bozeman are shooting live satellite TV interviews. From the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Oh, great! So I'm like, okay, man, this is thing. This thing is starting to kind of build some steam here. Yeah. Well, in, in 2014, I said, "Well, we don't have anything nationally that we can build around, but we've got some momentum." And what happens? Our Kansas City Royals right. miraculously get into <laughs> the playoffs and, and make this incredible World Series run. And the, the, the eyes are not only on Kansas City again, but they're on the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. 2015, they come back and win the doggone thing. And, and we've been rolling ever since, man. You know, that doesn't mean that they're not challenges. they are always going to be challenges. Anytime that you have to raise money, there's always a challenge. Right. But the momentum, and now this year, of course, the centennial, the 100th anniversary of the birth of the Negro Leagues. And again, guys, we were off to a flying start. You know, we commemorated the anniversary, February 13, 1920, Root Foster forms the Negro Leagues here in Kansas City, inside the old Paseo YMCA. Well, we go right back into that building 100 years from the date that Root Foster signed these leagues into existence. We go back into the old YMCA, which we're in the process of saving that old historic landmark It's going to be the Buck O'Neill Education and Research Center at some point in time. We've got the Commissioner of Major League Baseball with us. We've got Xavier James, Chief Operating Officer of Major League Baseball Player Association, a host of other dignitaries. And we commemorate the 100th anniversary. MLB and Major League Baseball Player Association announced a joint $1 million gift to the Negro League Baseball Museum uh and to support our year-long centennial celebration so we're we're running now we're off and off and running one month later everything comes to a (laughs) screeching halt man i mean this is incredulous Yeah,
0: Man,
2: you picked uh, the perfect timing to to hook up and come back to this museum as a director. I thought you were just marketing genius. <laughs> yeah, yeah, everything's just been I rolling say. your <laughs> way.
1: That's why I say the good Lord <laughs> <laughs> has here babies food. <laughs> you, you,
0: you uh, I want to take it back a little bit. You talk about Rube Foster because Rube Foster actually, I believe, pitched with the Philadelphia Giants for a while too before he uh, came out to Kansas City. Can you can you talk? I, I want to talk a little bit about the Negro Leagues in Philadelphia? Because, you know, we had the Giants at the, around the turn of the century, and then I know we had the Stars in the 30s and 40s. What, what, what information or, or what should we know about the, the Negro Leagues in
1: Philadelphia? That you have tremendously rich history there in Philadelphia as it relates to the heritage of this game. You mentioned, obviously, the old Philadelphia Giants who were, they predate the actual formalized Negro Leagues. But again, one of the great, I guess, barnstorming kind of independent black baseball teams ever. And Ruth Foster was a part of that team. You obviously had the great Philadelphia Stars. You had a team called the Philadelphia Tigers at one point in time over in Hilldale. I'm sorry, over in Darby, Pennsylvania. You Mm -hmm. had the great Hilldale team. Right. That was a dynamite team that was part of the Eastern Colored League that was formed in 1923. So when Ruth Foster forms the Negro Leagues in 1920, he forms the Negro National League. Eight teams were part of the original Negro National League. In 1923, a guy named Ed Bolden would form the Eastern Colored League. Uh-huh. And that Hilldale team was part of that Eastern Colored League they end up playing the Kansas City Monarchs in the inaugural World Series in 1924. The Monarchs won that World Series, but the Hilldale team came back in 25 and beat our Monarchs to win the World Series. So, yeah, the the city of Philadelphia and that region has had tremendous black baseball history as has the entire state of Pennsylvania. Sure. You know, okay. so black baseball is very prominent and and, and I hope that baseball fans are proud of that heritage or they need to make sure that we put them in a position so they can learn about the heritage of our sport in that, in that area. I was reading
2: about the 1934 championship for the national league, which is the stars and the Chicago giants. And that sound there couldn't be a more Philly championship. They were, I was reading about it. They're, like, pushing umpires around. Both teams, <laughs> like, both teams were fouling protests. Game seven was called a darkness. at 4-4 goes to a game eight. It's like couldn't be anything more Philly than that championship.
1: But i tell you what, you had a great one there in 34, a guy named Slim Jones. Slim Jones, guys, people thought was going to be the left-handed version of Satchel Paige. And Slim Jones had one of the great years of all time in 1934 with the Philadelphia Stars. As a matter of fact, we just named Slim Jones to this team that Major League Baseball has created where they're kind of doing this, the all-time great teams of Major League Baseball, but they created an all-star team from the Negro Leagues that I'll be quite frankly, this all-star team from the Negro Leagues should kill everybody that's playing in this thing Because it's basically filled with Hall of Famers at every position. But Slim Jones was a dynamic left-hand pitcher who's a tragic story. Slim Jones had tremendous potential. I mean, he threw hard, left-handed, and and was dominant. But Slim Jones had his personal demons, alcohol. Hmm. And and Slim Jones eventually, literally, freezes to death on a Philadelphia street because he sold his coat for alcohol. Mm. And, and it's a very tragic story uh, of, of, again, what could have been.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah, but we named him to that all-star team along with that pitching staff has Satchel Paige and Smokey Joe Williams and Leon Day and Bullet Rogan and Hilton Smith, uh, Dick Cannonball Redding. Uh, this staff is dominant. The team is dominant. Now, again, most folks don't know these names. But I can tell you now, I'll take this team, man, and we would take on all of in a heartbeat. There's not a single all-time major league team that would stand up to this team. But, again, most fans don't know these names.
2: Yeah. And that's- hey, I wanted to talk about um, – you guys are doing a program I think is just amazing called uh, Know the Score. Yes. Where you're teaching young kids for free how to keep score of baseball games. And I just think that's that's a, a an art form or a skill that has long passed and kids need It's so important. It keeps you into the game and it's just talk about that if you could.
1: And, and I think when you know how to score a game, you gain a deeper understanding mm-hmm. of the game because a lot of times kids will say the game is slow and it's boring, but you don't, don't know all the nuances of the game. And so we came up with this pilot program called Know the Score that we actually are using Negro League's history to teach kids how to score a game. Because at the museum, the centerpiece of the Negro League's museum is what we call the Field of Legends. And the Field of Legends features 10 life-size bronze sculptures of Negro League greats who are cast in position as if they were playing a game. And, And they represent 10 of the first group of Negro Leaguers, to be inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame, so we actually have this mock baseball diamond that we can simulate a game on, and oh, that's great. Uh, and then use the Negro Leagues history about the players, so that they can learn these positions and learn what happens in situations in terms of scoring the game. And so, you know, again, we're always challenging ourselves to try to be as creative and innovative as we possibly can in trying to help make Negro League's history relevant to an ever-changing generation of young people.
2: Yeah, you, they do say it's a slow game, but I have a partial season ticket plan for the Phillies, and the lady who sits next to me keeps scoring. When she has to go to the bathroom, I take over the book. And, and I'm always – she keeps track of the pitches. I'm always – it's moving
1: way too fast for me to, get <laughs> to <score. laughs> Yeah, it, it changes when you really understand. Yeah. It's a beautiful game. And it's, the, it's probably the oldest tradition in all of sports. It's keeping score. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um,
2: I, I have to ask, I mean, we're in Philly. What has the arrival of Andy Reid meant to Kansas City?
1: Well, man, I tell you what, I'm so happy for Coach Reid to finally get that Super Bowl champion. That I think he richly deserved. A man, he's such a good dude because that's what he is. He is a dude. He is a good, good. Dude. He
2: likes his barbecue too.
1: And yeah. It, yeah, so he's in the right place. Yeah. <laughs> now, now if but we... you can tell how much his players, how much his players love him. Yeah. Obviously, he's a brilliant football mind, and they were, and of course, they were all smart enough to bring a, a kid named Patrick Mahomes to the yeah. that. <laughs> They were small enough to bring Patrick Mahomes to Kansas City, uh, and, and it was a magical year for us here in KC. But I'm so happy for Coach Reed because uh, he is just a genuine good guy. Yeah. yeah.
2: So uh, I know you're brave. I know you got Braves history. This is this is going to be if you This is a truth test. I like you so far. I really <laughs> like you a lot. <laughs> Who's the greatest National League third baseman ever, Mike Smith Woo! or Larry Jones?
1: No, it's it, it, it got to be it's got to be Smith.
0: All right, all right. There ain't right, no right.
1: Question. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it, it, it's, it's no question. I mean, Mike Mike Smith is one of the greatest third basemen of all time, and you know we talk about a guy here in Kansas City from the Negro Leagues named Ray Dandridge, okay. and Ray Dandridge, in my estimation, is the greatest third baseman who have never played in the major leagues. Ray Dandridge, guys, was incredible. Ray Dandridge makes it up to the Minneapolis Millers, which were the New York Giants' AAA team. He and Willie Mays are there at the same time, even though Dandridge is considerably older. Ray Dandridge was named MVP of the Millers when he was 38 years old. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But there was no room, of course, in the major leagues for a 38 year old baseball player, no less a 38 year old black baseball player at that time. And so he never got the opportunity to fulfill that dream uh, of playing in the major leagues. Ray Dandridge had big, wide bow legs and his teammates used to tease him that his legs were so bow that you could drive a train. Between his legs, but a baseball would never get between them. He could <laughs> flat out pick it, man. Yeah, he could. Now, can you give us? Can you give us a good Buck O'Neill story? Oh man, there there are so many. Uh, Buck was my guy. He he was my guy, and when I think about Buck, what number one? There is never a day that I don't think about Buck. Uh, every day goes by, Buck O'Neill comes up, and it's still hard to believe. That this is, he, he will have passed away 14 years ago this year. And it's still hard to believe that it's been that long because everywhere I go, somebody's got a Buck O'Neill story. And, and I never get tired of hearing them, bring them on. Right. And most of his stories are always related to other people. And, and he just tells so, many, he tells so many. And so I get to tell his stories. But perhaps the thing that I remember most about Buck. You always felt better leaving Buck than you did when you came to see him. Yeah, you knew he was special. He was absolutely special. My greatest memory of Buck was was actually February 27th of 2006 when Buck was up for induction into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And be quite frankly, y'all, we all thought it was a shoe in that Buck O'Neill is going to get in the Hall of Fame. Now, you may recall that the Hall of Fame had put together a committee of 12 Negro League historians, researchers, and educators who were essentially going to determine the fate of the final group that had made the ballot, about 35 plus, that had made the final ballot. There was no limitation for the number of players they could put in, but this was going to be kind of the final swoop in terms of inducting Negro League players into the Hall of Fame. They had all gathered in Tampa, Florida. And so Buck O'Neill and I left home the morning of February 27, 2006, with suitcases packed, with airline tickets that the Hall of Fame had purchased for us. That's how sure we were he was going to get in the Hall of Fame. (laughs) And so at that time, I'm the marketing director for the museum. And so I had brokered a deal with Sprint. So I've got my Sprint phone, Buck got his Sprint phone, We're going to take the Hall of Fame call on the Sprint call, and Sprint going to pay us a bunch of money. Absolutely brilliant, if I have to say so myself. (laughs) And and so the call was supposed to come to me that morning around 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock rolls around, I don't get a phone call. Finally, about noon, my colleague, Dr. Ray Doswell, who was one of the 12 members who was down in Florida making this decision on who gets in, he calls me and says, "Well, Bob, this thing is looking tight. We just did straw vote. Buck is coming up one vote shot." I call my friend Joe Posnansky, the great sports writer, who's in the, in the conference room with Buck at our offices at the Negro League Museum. I call him out. I say, "Hey, Joe, I just got a call from Ray, and Ray says, "This thing is tight. They just did straw vote. Buck's coming up one vote shot. They just went back in." Former Commissioner Faye Vincent was overseeing the committee. And he says they just went back in to talk specifically about Buck O'Neill and Minnie Minoso. He's in disbelief. Finally, about 2 o'clock, I get a call from Jeff Idelson. Jeff Idelson was, at that time, the vice president of marketing for the National Baseball Hall of Fame. He just recently retired as president of the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And Jeff calls me and he says, well, Bob, Buck didn't get enough votes. Hmm. And fellas, I felt like somebody had kicked me in my gut. Because mm-hmm. now I got to go back in this conference room and tell my friend that he didn't get enough votes when I know in his heart he thought he was in. Right, Why right. wouldn't he? Yeah. And, and so I go back in the room and I say, well, I, Joe Paz, Buck is seated at the head of the table. Joe Paz is on the opposite side of the table. I go across the room. And I sit across from Joe. And I say, well, Buck, we didn't get enough votes. And he looks up at me and he smiles. He says, that's how the cookie crumbles. And in the next voice, he asked me how many had gotten in. I said 17. Now, I'll be honest. I was furious. Because in my mind, you can't put 17 in and leave Buck out. Sure. He hits the table in utter jubilation he is excited that 17 of his colleagues had gotten their rightful place in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. He asked me who they were. Well, I didn't have that information at that point in time. And the next words that came out of his mouth, I wonder if the Hall of Fame will invite me to speak. Now, Joe Posnanski had turned beet red. (laughs) He is furious. He looks at Buck and he says, Buck, You wouldn't do that, would you? Buck says, Joe, of course I would. What has my life been about? And I say, well, Buck, I need to go downstairs because down on our field, over 300 people had gathered for what we all thought was going to be a Hall of Fame celebration announcement. I said, Buck, I need to go downstairs. I'll deliver the news. I'll come back and get you because I think you should address the group. It's been a long day. Well, as I oftentimes tell the story from our upstairs conference room to the field of legends down inside the Negro Leagues Museum was the longest walk of my life. I am literally trying to coach myself. Bob, you can't cry. Whatever <laughs> you do, you can't cry. This is your job. You've got to suck it up. The more I'm telling myself not to cry, tears are eyes. <laughs> and, 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 and we had the podium <laughs> at second base. And guys, this is the honest to God's truth. I have yet to go back to watch the video. I have no idea what I said that day. (laughs) Whatever it was, there wasn't a dry eye in the room. People were openly emotional. And man, this wasn't disappointment. This was anger. It was outrage. Well, Buck walks in through our gift shop. And of course, the room erupts into this thunderous ovation. And he walks up to the podium. And for lack of a better term, delivered one of the most amazing concession speeches that I'd ever heard. What he did that day was he literally implored all of us not to be angry, not to be bitter, not to express any ill will toward anyone who had anything to do with this decision. He said, I had an opportunity. And in this great country of ours, that's all you could ever ask. They didn't think old Buck was good enough. We got to live with that. But if I'm a hall of fame in your eyes, that's all that matters to me. Just keep on loving old Buck. Now guys, I'm over in the corner now. (laughs) I am an absolute (laughs) wreck at this point in time. Tears are free-flowing falling from my eyes. But what Buck did that day was he literally reached out his arms, wrapped them around all of us and said, it's okay. Instead of us consoling him, he was consoling us and what I still say to be one of the most amazing displays of strength of character that i would ever witnessed. He would push aside his disappointment, go to Cooperstown, deliver this incredible speech on behalf of 17 dead folks who did not have a voice. Yeah, they didn't have a voice. Right. And there was but being their voice. And again, what I say to be one of the most selfless acts. In American sports history, a little over two months later, O'Buck passed away himself at age 94, a month shy of his 95th birthday. Hmm. I will remember that day for the rest of my life, or as my mother would say, as long as I'm in my natural mind. It was one of the most disappointing days for me, both personally and professionally. But it was also one of the most inspirational days that I think I've ever witnessed in my life.
0: Wow! Wow! Thank you for that story, man. I'm getting choked up. I'm getting choked up just here. Oh my gosh, that's a level of dignity we don't we don't get to see too often. No, no, we could use a whole lot more
1: Buck O'Neill in this world today.
0: Yes, yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. yes, indeed. Yep. Uh, well, we want to before we take off. Uh, we do want to talk a little bit about Jackie Robinson and his impact, um, both in the Negro Leagues and in the Major Leagues, and, and and what him going to the Major Leagues meant for the Negro Leagues. I, like you saw, I showed you that interview I I did with uh, Doc Glenn back in. Um, yeah,
1: man, it was it was outstanding. Yeah,
0: that was that was really cool to listen to again. I hadn't heard it in so long. I had the tape, and I finally said, I got to put this down today. But um, uh, but but I want to talk because it's not just about you know Jackie going to the majors. That also meant that the players in the Negro leagues knew that that probably meant the end of many of their careers. And that took a, a lot of selflessness, which is something that we were just talking about, to cheer on Jackie because his going to the majors meant their jobs were in jeopardy, right?
1: Yeah, Jackie was the beginning, but he was also the end. He was the beginning of process of progress and an opportunity for aspiring young African-American baseball players to move into the major leagues. But his breaking of the color barrier was also the death knell of the Negro League and i think black owners instantly realized that or i should say negro league owners instantly realized that once jackie robinson breaks the color barrier it wasn't a matter of if it was simply a matter of when the negro leagues were going to fold and and so there were a lot of veteran negro league players who got put out of business for the simple reason of the fact that the major leagues didn't want them because they were too old the negro leagues didn't want them because they were too old i can't sell you now to the major leagues because it literally became a fire sale in the Negro leagues once. And it wasn't when Branch Rickey signs Jackie Robinson because Branch Rickey never paid for Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson was playing here for the Kansas City Monarchs and and Jackie Robinson was under contract with JL Wilkinson. Wilkinson was an astute businessman. So there's no way that Robinson is not under contract. And Branch Rickey literally took Jackie Robinson away from the Kansas City Monarchs. But see, J.L. Wilkinson could not fight back. You know why? J.L. Wilkinson was white. Yeah, J.L. Wilkinson was white. And J.L. Wilkinson had made his entire living in black baseball. And so there's no way that this white man can stand up and protest what every black person in America had been waiting on. He was damned if he did and damned if he didn't. Yeah. And so publicly, Wilkie said all the right things. Privately, he's seething. He's not seething because a black man is about to play in the major leagues, but this black man that you're about to take away from me, you're going to put me out of business. Right. He sold his interest in the Monarchs the year after Jackie breaks the color barrier to his business partner, T.Y. Barron. Well, when Bill Vett goes and gets Larry Doby from the Newark Eagles, Effa Manley insisted that she get compensated. And Vec, who I think was obviously, too, a very righteous man, realized that I can't just come take someone who is legally bound, and so they paid I don't know fifteen thousand dollars I believe for Larry Doby, which was a bargain for a future Hall of Famer. Yeah, but and then I, that I, set the stage.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, Doby to me is one of the all-time most underrated players in the majors, and and you know I I totally am uh, I'm a huge Jackie Robinson fan. I mean, he's really a hero uh, to me to me, but Larry Doby, I don't think gets nearly enough credit for coming off right afterwards.
1: No, no, that's what happens in our society. We always remember the first. We never remember the second. Right. It's only been over the last decade that Larry Doby has finally started to get his just due for his pioneering role integrating the American League with the Cleveland Indians just several weeks after Jackie breaks the color barrier in the National League with Brooklyn. And we're in the midst right now. We were going to debut a new traveling exhibition in Los Angeles on on this past Wednesday, called Barrier Breakers. And the Barrier Breaker exhibit chronicles all of the players who broke their respective major league team color barrier, uh, going from Jackie in 1947 through Pumpsy Green being the last to break the cycle in 1959 with the Boston Red Sox. Because we felt like they should not they deserve to be more than just a footnote in baseball history the answer to a trivia question and and so we're chronicling their story both in a new permanent exhibition at the negro leagues museum but also a traveling component that will tour the country so that people will realize the challenges that all these players went through it didn't get any easier for Pumpsy green in 1959 than it did for jackie robinson in 1947. Right, right, right.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I had a, a couple years ago, a bartender friend of mine came up and said, and we were just talking baseball, and he, said, he said, have you said, have you ever really looked at Larry Doby's stats? And I was like, no, I know he's a really good player, but and he was like, look at him. He's like, He he put up numbers that were just as good as Jackie Robinson's, if not better. And I was blown away. I was like, oh, come on. And, and, and
1: I looked, and I was just like, wow. And the interesting thing about Doby is that Doby never played a date in the minor leagues he went straight from the Newark eagles over to cleveland and then of course in 1948 he and the legendary satchel page would help the cleveland indians win the 48 world series as a matter of fact my cleveland indian fans get tired of hearing me say this it was the last time that cleveland <laughs> won the world series <laughs> was 1948 with right. satchel and larry Doby. Right.
0: Well, thank you so much, uh, Bob. This has been yeah. A really thanks, great day Bob. For good. Us. This is, this has been awesome, and we really appreciate everything you're doing.
1: Yeah, guys, thank you so much for the opportunity. I hope that uh, once we get past this pandemic situation, your travels will bring you out to Kansas City to see the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Yeah, I love that. Before we leave, when we get there, where do we go for barbecue? I'm a Gates barbecue fan. Okay. okay. Yeah, wow. I'm a Gates barbecue fan, and that's at the sake of Upsetting a whole lot of my barbecue friends in this business, but I, I, I'm also a little biased because the owner of the gate Barbecue Chain of Restaurants is also helping me build the Buck O'Neill SK.
2: Love man.
0: this guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right,
1: well, we hope to grab some uh, barbecue with you here before too long, Bob. Yeah. Hey, and I am looking forward to it. Uh, All right, thanks, Bob. Thank you so much. Guys, appreciate you. Thank yep. you. Take it easy. Right, bye